Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Stand-up comedy is hard. First off, public speaking is many people's worst nightmare, and from the moment you walk on stage, people are judging you. You've got to be confident, but self-aware. You're... Material has to be strong, but you have to be nimble enough to improvise with the audience. You have to be relatable, but you also have to have an original point of view. The pressure of all of these factors combined is enough to keep most people from ever pursuing comedy. But what if, on top of all of this, you have a disability? A condition that limits your ability to walk, to speak, or even to stand up? Today, you'll meet one comedian who lost her legs in a crash and uses a wheelchair. Another comedian we hear from has Tourette's. He's known on stage for his absurdist one-liners, which are occasionally interrupted by verbal tics. But first up, Maysoon Zayed is a Palestinian-American comedian and actress. She started the largest ethnic comedy festival in the country, the Arab American Comedy Festival, which is now in its 20th year. And she had the most viewed TED Talk of 2014. Maysoon was born with cerebral palsy, a result of an injury during childbirth. Cerebral palsy affects her ability to move and maintain balance and posture, as well as her speech. I don't want anyone in this room to feel bad for me, because at some point in your life, you have dreamt of being disabled. Come on a journey with me. It's Christmas Eve. You're at the mall. You're driving around in circles looking for parking. And what do you see? 16 empty handicapped spaces. And you're like, God, can't I just be a little disabled? Now, a lot of public figures who have disabilities often hear, you're so inspiring, Maysoon included. I asked her how she feels when she hears that. I don't mind being inspirational if, you know, you're like a 14-year-old in high school and you're like, I want to become a stand-up comic and you're watching my stuff and you're like, oh, really interesting. She doesn't use slurs. She doesn't use hate speech. It's not riddled with misogyny. I'm inspired to become a comedian by Maysoon. That is totally fine, 100%. What I don't like is the idea that disabled people are inspirational by design. That means three different things. One, I think the basis of people calling us inspirational is they're inspired by our will to live because they do not want to live the way that we do. People say all the time they'd rather be dead than disabled. People come up to me and say to my face, you are so brave, I would kill myself if I were you. Because like... The concept of living our lives is terrifying to them because somewhere deep inside, non-disabled people understand that they're just one little accident away from their greatest fear. And so I think that that there is the starting point. I don't want to be inspirational to you because if you were me, you would kill yourself. 
The second thing that makes us inspirational to people is the idea that like we are not supposed to do anything. So it's like she dipped that fry in the ketchup and she ate it. And that like independence, it just really inspired me. But it didn't inspire me enough to vote for disability rights. It didn't inspire me enough to really push for home-based healthcare, not to be the very first thing that got cut out of the infrastructure bill. Like, oh, you're so inspired by our bravery and our ketchup dipping, but you're not doing anything to improve the quality of life of your average non, you know, of your average disabled neighbor. And then finally, the thing about inspiration that annoys me is low bar. I'm an entertainer, man. I don't do stuff to just be like, yay, clap for the disabled chick. Now, to be clear, I am my own most worst enemy because when I was 18 years old, I did do an on-point ballet solo to win beneath my wings. And I did not understand how inherently inspirational that piece would be. And as I got a weeping standing ovation, I thought it was I because I was badass, not because everyone was like, oh my God, the disabled girl, she's the wind beneath our wings. So like, I understand that sometimes we play into it. If I do a Lifetime Christmas movie, I'm going to inspire you all to make bad choices in your romantic love life, like abandoning the entire career that you built for a man that tripped over a Christmas tree and bumped into you. But he was so handsome. (laughs) Yeah, but this is why the term inspirational has such a negative connotation to so many disabled people. Like I said, if I inspire you because I'm like your Palestinian Beyonce, hello, yes. I'm in. But like I said, if I inspire you, because they're like, she's wearing a Princeton sweatshirt. We think she put it on by herself. You've been you've been doing stand-up and you've been in comedy for a long time now. Long so you've developed time. you have developed just like anybody else develops when you do something for a long time. Yeah. At this point, how much do you make uh, your disability uh, character or something you talk about and how much you like there's anything else to talk about depends on the weather it completely depends on the weather it's like if it's cold and rainy and my joints are acting up you're gonna get a lot of disability comedy if like the other day this is a completely true story the other day in new york city i got out of a cab and i face planted And as I was face planting, I took out an entire other human being like a domino and she was carrying a bottle of wine and it shattered on the ground. So I was like soaked in wine. And all I could think was like, if I was in high school, my parents would never believe I wasn't drunk. But also like I was, you know, face first on the New York City pavement. I was like, is my nose broken? Are my teeth broken? And I just see all this wine that looks like blood around me. And I'm like, I'm broken. So that would be something that maybe the entire seven minutes would just be about the domino wipeout and New York City street. And is that really about disability? I don't think so. Because I told people I wiped out like my foot caught the curb and I wiped out. It could have happened to anyone. It had very little to do with being palsy. 
But other days I'm like, you know, someone says something absurd to me about my disability. So then, of course, that's going to get on stage. Same thing with politics. Like, you know, if something political is happening like January 6th, that's going to be what I'm talking about, you know. But if it's Christmas, then I'm probably talking about Santa. When you're traveling around doing stand-up, now I, I want to vouch for there, there's a comedy club in Hartford where I live called CT Improv. Uh, nice. It's an underground comedy club, and uh, you know they've got they've got an elevator. They're incredibly accommodating for all people. But I also my stereotype about comedy clubs and the comedy venue circuit is not necessarily that they would be prepared for anybody and anybody, right? They're so when terrible. Okay, like what kind of things you've been up against? Everything. I've had to booty up to stages at colleges. And I, so I do the four C's, the four C's of comedy, comedy clubs, colleges, corporate and conferences. Conferences are amazing. They're always super accessible. They get their audience. That's where you get like elevators and ASL interpreters and they tend to be in hotels and they tend to build out a stage and the stage has a ramp and usually like 90% of the time, no one attached the railing. Like whenever I do my tech, I just grab the railing and like throw it off and people are like, <gasps> they didn't attach it. And then the guy is like, we never attach it. Nobody ever needs it. And I'm like, well, I need it. And that kind of sucks. I won an award at the uh, Madrian Oriental Hotel in, in in Manhattan. And I can't stand. I have cerebral palsy. I can walk. I can dance. But if I stand, I fall over immediately. Went to accept that award. And the stool I sat on disintegrated like sugar. Like whoever had put it together had a couple of extra pieces, didn't know what to do with them, just put them to the side. And I like collapse like ass out feet up on the stage but I've had to shimmy backwards up stairs like on my booty to get on stage and then that's really fun because once you get on the stage you have at least five seconds when you're in a dog position like there's no way that you can get out from the stair to the stage to standing up without a crawl in the middle there so that's always fun and here's what I've realized I've realized that A, a lot of the audiences are accessible because they are picking up with the ADA, but comedy clubs aren't even doing that. Like comedy clubs, if you ever go to the comedy cellar, that ain't accessible. Nothing about the comedy cellar is accessible. Gotham Comedy Club in New York City is 100% accessible, 100%. But most of the places I perform, not just for comedy clubs, but corporate and colleges, the audience is accessible and the stage is not. There's two or three stairs. There's a really weird green room that goes through like a kitchen and over like a garbage can. And you high five like Ratatouille and like you don't even know what the bellies of these places that I've been look like. As the co-founder and co-executive producer of the New York Arab American Comedy Festival and the Muslim Funny Fest, what do you look for? In a comedian, like what is it that stands out about somebody that makes you go, oh, you're you're going to be a part of this? Originality. I get really annoyed by comedians that get on stage and do a joke that I saw like Jerry Seinfeld or like Elaine Boozler do 30 years ago. Like Google hummus jokes, 
see who already told them and see if your joke is original or not. Like, I cannot stand that. So when someone tells a really personal story that can only be theirs, that's when I'm really entertained. It could even be like a political view or their take on cats. But when it's personal, it's original because no one can feel the way that you feel about a certain thing. So that always captivates me. Energy. It doesn't, one of my favorite comedians is this guy named Mohamed Shashakli. And he is a Stephen Wright. Very like quiet, calm, slow. And this guy just kills me because it's so like slow that when you get that punchline, it's just like being hit by a freight train. It's so good. But I also like comedians that are like, you know, Tiffany Haddish, just like jumping up and down the entire time. Or like, you know, I love Nicole Breyer. I love Joelle and Nicole. I love, I love, love, love Mitch Hedberg. Like, rest in peace. Yeah, rest in peace. I won't admit it. He's with JFK and Tupac somewhere. See, when you come up with a joke, do you like write it down somewhere? Do you have a, a Google Doc? I a don't. You just a hundred percent in your head. If it's a hundred percent in my head, so. I have cerebral palsy and it makes me shake all the time. So I can't type. I hire a typist and I pay them for four hours a day of typing. I can't sit and type jokes. So they're all in my head. And the way that I think about it is if I forgot the joke, it couldn't have been that good. It would have stuck if it was. So that I have other stuff in my head. I have entire movies in my head that I dictate to my typist. So like my comedy is the easiest thing that's taking up room. But also my stand-up comedy is a conversation. So my intro is my staple. It's me coming out and being like, I'm not drunk. I have a disability. Because if the audience doesn't know what's happening with me, they're not going to hear any of my jokes. They're just going to be like, what's going on with her? So I get that out of the way. And then it's a conversation. I'm talking to the audience. Are they enjoying me having a whole thing about not getting Taylor Swift tickets? Maybe not. If not, let's talk about parents. And I'm just having a conversation with them. That's why it's not a plan because everybody wants to hear something different. That does not apply to corporate. My corporate gigs are like completely spelled out. I still don't write them down, but in my head, it's like a five act uh, play. I know what I'm going to say to begin, to end, and what's in the middle. <clears throat> and I'm like super clean for corporate. And people are like, how are you so funny when you're clean? I always say, if you're not funny when you're clean, you're not funny. Sort of like if the joke wasn't sticking in your memory, it wasn't funny enough. Yeah. A great joke you don't forget. It's like a moment in time. And and then I keep those jokes in my back pocket, right? I don't do jokes once. I never, ever do them again. Like in that conversation, I'll be like, oh, you know what would be a great story? That gummy bear joke. I'm bringing it back. Just like we all tell our own stories over and over again in different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over Why and stop over there? in different settings with different punchlines and different details and different hyperbole. When I picture you on stage, I picture it being cathartic. And after you go off, you feel a sense of relief. Like, ah, I got that energy through me. Just, it just, 
Is that correct? Like, no. is that how you know? No, no. I feel like when's the next one? I'm an addict and I'm not like minimizing addiction, which is a serious, serious issue. I'm literally an addict because it's an adrenaline rush and I'm looking for that rush again. And like my mental health starts to like decline when I can't get on stage. And I remember like being one of the first comics that was doing like heavy hitting corporate virtual gigs during COVID because I couldn't stop. I was like, I have to do something. Let me try. I'll do it for free. Just let me try, you know? So like for me, it's never cathartic. It's always when's the next stage? What can I do better? What's that rewrite of the joke? But not punishing myself. This is the narcissist, pardon me. I get off stage and I'm like, I slayed. And everyone backstage is like, you slayed. I'm like, I know. But then I drive home and I'm like, yeah, that queen joke could still be better. Or or I'll get off stage and I'll be like, it was a great show and I was lazy. They loved it, but I know that I dialed that in. Because I have dialed in shows. You can't do 200 shows a year and not dial in 10. I just make sure that when I do that, it's still like top-notch entertainment. You've pointed out that disabled people make up the world's largest minority and... They are also least represented in media and TV and politics and everything. So with that in mind, when you consider the future of representation of people who are disabled, what do you feel? I think that I've been doing this work for 20 years. And I think that Lawrence Cardlong and Judy Hume and Jim Brecht and, you know, all these amazing people and like Crip Hop and and uh, Andre Levant, we've been doing this for 20 years. So like I see the kids these days breaking in that are disabled and they're like, look, we're so revolutionary. And I'm like, you're revolutionary because we've been doing the work. The work has been put in. So one of the biggest things was like representation was non-existent. And then we start doing white papers and talking to the Academy and talking to SAG-AFTRA and talking to casting directors. And it's changing, but it's not changing enough because disability is so white. And that's not my hashtag. It's Melissa Thompson's hashtag. But disability is so white. So like when you think of disabled representation, I'm thinking of and amazing actors who I love, Steve Wayon, Rami, you know, Michael Fowler on Speechless. I can't think of a lot of uh, BIPOC people that are being represented. So when I say that the disabled population is the largest minority, I also like to remind people that we intersect with every other minority, LGBTQ community, Black, you know, Indigenous, women, the whole nine yards. And what I'm seeing on TV is not enough, but better than when we began. What's better than we began is I think people are realizing you should probably have a disabled person on the show. And yet I'm still explaining to people that you have to have disabled writers. Otherwise we get stuck in three tropes. You can't love me because I'm disabled, heal me or kill me. So we also need to be telling our own stories. And there's a lot of initiatives to let us tell our own stories, but I feel like the same person wins every time. It's like a cinematic joke. That like once they find one black person, one disabled person, one gay person, that's it. That's the person. And you see that person in every single show and you're like, 
do they think this is the only person or is this just like, I don't want to look for anyone else? So I think the future of disability starts with education. Disabled students being embraced by film and acting programs at the university level and say being discouraged and being pushed out of those programs so that they can get the base and get the education they need to be writers, to be directors. We need disabled people behind the scenes and on screen. But those disabled people need to understand you have to be five times better than your non-disabled peer. Hollywood is competitive. Media is competitive. If you're going to make it, you can't be mediocre. They can be mediocre. You can't. I'm sorry. Don't know what to tell you. But I see the future being a battle and that if we don't fight it, we lose it. Well, Maysoon Zayed, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. When we get back, one comedian who uses a wheelchair on the hilarity of the time she went on The Price is Right and won a treadmill. I truly didn't know what to do. I was like, the models are so pretty. I was like, Danielle, say something nice. (laughs) Say something nice about this because this is wild. Plus, what life is like on stage when you have Tourette's. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're meeting comedians who have disabilities. Later you'll meet an extremely funny man who also has Tourette's. But right now, meet Danielle Perez a comedian who uses a wheelchair. I, I'm so glad that things are opening back up because, you know, I want to get out there. I want to pop bottles. I want to pop wheelies. You know, just go to the club. <laughs> I, I miss going to the club so much. I miss when people ask if it's my make-a-wish to be there. Because <laughs> it's not. <laughs> if I had a wish, it would probably be to have feet. <laughs> when Danielle was 20, she was living in San Francisco and her... Legs below the knees were amputated after a crash with a streetcar. I asked her what she remembers from that day. After it hit me, I was, there's like a block of time that I was out. But the first thing I do remember are people talking to me, you know, asking me like, what's your name? Like, uh, how old are you? What year is it? Things like that. But then, uh, you know, they started asking me, you know, can you feel certain parts of your body? And 
then they asked if I could feel my feet. And that was that was the first moment that I started to be like, uh oh, something is not something is amiss because I could not feel them. And then they were able to get me in an ambulance. And then I was out for a few days. And then I woke up. My mom was with me. And the first thing she says to me is like, you don't have feet. It's like, well, the last thing I do remember is not feeling them. So this tracks. And then I knocked out again for a few more days. (laughs) So I was very, you know what I mean? Like I was hit by a train. So my pelvis shattered. It ruptured my bladder. They had to open me up like sternum to pelvis to like check all the organs, repair all of that. On top of the lacerations below the knee. I was in the hospital for like a month, just healing and trying to not be in ICU. <laughs> and you were 20. Yes. At what point did you think, I can find this funny? I think <laughs> right away, uh, they had like prosthetists come in and try to talk to me about like, what are pros- prosthetics and how would that work? And I was like, hold up, hold up. Will I be able to be taller? And can I wear heels? And the guy said, yes. And I was like, okay, that's all I need to know. I was like, we're done. There's (laughs) no more conversation. And like, clearly I use a manual wheelchair uh, (laughs) (laughs) like 18 years later. So uh, yeah, there still is more conversation to be had (laughs) about it. (laughs) To have this really difficult experience at 20. Uh, and to find humor in it and to adapt to this new life and this different body and um, getting around using a wheelchair and seeing, I'm sure, how the world is not at all designed for people with wheelchairs. And then you get this experience on The Price is Right. Uh, George, what do we got for? Couple of prizes, Danielle. We've got a treadmill and a new sauna. These are really nice. We got one price tag, $3,695. Does that go to the treadmill or the sauna? I'm going to go with the sauna. Sauna, she says. It's all you, Manuela. $3,695. Let's give it to her. Ready? One, two, three. Congratulations. I, I, I'd just like to hear what that moment was like for you. It was so funny. Like, it was the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> I mean, you really couldn't write this. <laughs> it was hilarious. I mean, it was just like, I'm on stage and they're like, you're playing for a treadmill and a walking sauna. And I'm just like, this is insane. This is so funny. Like, this is. And I saw footage like you were trying to be nice about it. It's like, this is great. I was like, I truly didn't know what to do. I was like, the models are so pretty. I was like, Danielle, say something nice. <laughs> So it's really nice about this because this is wild. So when you won the sauna and the treadmill, what did you do with each of them? I literally still have the treadmill. (laughs) It's in a box in my living room. Um, Something very cool that happened. Uh, The day after the episode aired and went viral, Jimmy Kimmel had me on his show, Jimmy Kimmel Live, and um, I am like, okay, well, I'll bring back the treadmill. 
when I when I get invited back on the show and we'll auction it off. So uh, that's my grand plan for the treadmill. Everyone will get to see it again soon. When you are going through life and a great joke comes to you or out of your mouth in the middle of a conversation, how do you store it to use later? Sometimes I will need someone else to point it out and be like, that was really funny. And I was like, really? Was that? Oh, okay. I guess <laughs> I guess I'll write it down. <laughs> I'm pretty terrible about that, about <laughs> not realizing that that was a joke that I could use for later. But uh, usually, like, for me, um, I'll go on stage, I'll run my set, and I voice memo everything, and so then I listen back to it. And usually, like, like with open mics, I would listen to the audio recording on my way to the next open mic, and if I'm doing three open mics a night, that's like three times I'm listening to it. So I'm hearing it, remembering it, remembering what's working, what's not working, what I want to change, what I want to add on to. Is this always on your mind in the way that, like, my job is always on my mind? No, thankfully. (laughs) (laughs) When I think about being a comedian, I think there's got to be a certain amount of confidence to do such a thing, right? First of all, public speaking freaks most people out. So there's that hurdle. You've got confidence over that. And confidence to be funny at being funny is hard. Like so much about what you're doing is hard to most people. And so I wonder if the confidence to be a comedian is because you keep doing it or are you doing it so much because you just have this confident sort of wiring? I think part of it is just my nature. Um, when I uh, first became disabled, I wasn't really leaving the house a lot. And my dad took me out to get lunch one day. And I really honestly was not leaving the house unless I was going to like a doctor's appointment um, or physical therapy. And so I was like out in the middle of the day you know, lunchtime and people, I could just feel everyone staring, staring, looking, eyes burrowing into me, just these kind of questions in their eyes of like, what's going on? This like young girl, no feet in a wheelchair. And in that experience, I just realized, I was like, I cannot carry everyone's opinions and questions about me. Like I have to be able to shut this out. Otherwise, like, I'm not going to be able to survive. Like, I'm not going to be able to, like, live my life and, like, go on. So, you know, there is a degree of, like, tuning out that noise and not taking on what other people think of you. And so when you start doing stand-up, you're learning so much. You're learning, like, basics about how to speak into a microphone, how to hold it, where to move the mic stand. I mean, that sounds so, like, obvious and, like, minuscule, but, like, it matters. (laughs) And then, you know, things like confidence, right? Being able to get the words out in like a, in a calm way where you're not, (laughs) you know, nervous. And then the audience is nervous because they see that you're nervous and then how to write a joke and actually be funny. But something that I guess I didn't have to really work on as much was that nervousness about, oh my God, people are seeing me. I'm on stage and I'm talking in a microphone and now everyone's looking at me because I have 
been processing that for so long. So I could just focus on like, what is funny? What are jokes? Was there a part of you that got the interview request for this show that you're on right now and thought, God, do I have to keep talking about this? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Why'd you say yes? Um, you know, I do love NPR, big fan of NPR. I support, I'm a donor, I'm a listener just like you. (laughs) (laughs) Viewers like you. Yes. Um, but I think ultimately accessibility is important (laughs) and whether you're learning about disability and accessibility through a comedian or an activist, those are all good entry ways, entry points to like, just like broaden your understanding and be able to like change the way that you like operate in the world and like your empathy. You know, the pandemic has left a lot of people disabled. A lot of people are struggling with long COVID and so much of the technology that we used has been developed by disabled people and has been used by disabled people. And, you know, there's a way to make the world accessible. And part of that is like understanding that not everyone lives in the same body as you. So if humor is the little sneaky back door where you're like, I think she's funny and she is disabled and, oh, wow, I've never thought about the spaces that I'm in and, she wouldn't be able to perform here. And maybe this space should be accessible. Maybe my store, or my coffee shop, or my fashion, <laughs> like all those things, uh, they're all interconnected. And so, yeah, I think that's important that we have like empathy for other people who are different from us and want to make the world more inclusive for all of us. Thanks. I'm glad you said yes. I was like, very earnest. (laughs) (laughs) You contain multitudes, Danielle. Yes. (laughs) Well, Danielle Perez, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Thank you so much. And definitely go check out a comedy show. Live comedy is, I think, honestly, that's like one of the things I just love the most about it is that, you know, there's not another show like tonight with this group of people in this place. You know, it's a live Uh, art form and it's always special every single time it happens you can see danielle on the latest seasons of russian doll on netflix and curb your enthusiasm on hbo after the break the comedian who has tourette's talks about when to bring it up during a set and some things that exacerbate his symptoms definitely like adrenaline uh nerves um also thinking about it more makes me do it more it's a whole range of things i'm kyone wolf this is audacious be right back You're listening to the new investigative reporting podcast, In Absentia, which means you're interested in getting to the facts and uncovering the truth. If you'd like to help us continue our investigative work, consider making a donation. Visit ctpublic.org slash tap support and contribute today. That's ctpublic.org slash TAP support. Thank you for being a part of the Accountability Project. 
So, you've never donated to this station before? That's okay. Public Media Giving Days are a great time to make your first gift. Here's how. Give now at ctpublic.org donate. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today's show is about comedians who have disabilities, and I want you to meet Benny Feldman. Not everybody who has Tourette's has the same symptoms. Benny's includes vocal tics, profanity, tongue clicking, and twitches in his face, legs, and arms, and sometimes even in his breathing. I connected with him from his home base in New York City, and I wondered when he started noticing his symptoms of Tourette's. It usually comes in when you're roughly like seven to like 14. Um, for me personally, um, I had a much milder form when I was younger. Uh, and then when I was 21, I did psychedelics and it got worse. <laughs> I think it's it's not 100% sure, but that's probably what happened. What was the psychedelic? Uh, acid and shrooms in the same week. And that's when things really changed after. It got noticeably different within a time span of a few months. So it's not it's not clear. It wasn't like did it that day. Next day it was different. It was like did it that day. I had I had weird stuff going on in my brain for a, a bit, uh, certain like paranoia things, and then that kind of faded out and the Tourette's faded in. So when you get on stage, you but, tell them right off the bat, "Hey, I have Tourette's. Why?" Because uh, if I don't, then they're gonna be like, "What?" <laughs> I also try to not uh, make it a joke up top. Uh, like that line is kind of sober it's just like hey i have tourette's and then i do i do other jokes first and then i'll do tourette's material to like make it clear that i do have a sense of humor about it lately i've been trying to do some tourette's material up top just so i do make it clear i have a sense of humor but i still try to separate it from the initial intro where i go uh hey i happen to have tourette's don't worry you know because i don't want to make that part funny because then some crowds will laugh at the ticks and that, that's when they laugh at your tics, does that throw you off or are you prepared for it? Because it happens all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's a mix. Um, I definitely see it as more of like a nervous laugh. And I can also hear kind of the shape of the laugh. And if it's like, if it kind of peters out where it's like kind of unsureness to it, I'm like, okay, I understand. They're like, not sure. But I've definitely done shows where I remember, I just remember this really, this one mic I did a while ago where a guy in the crowd would not stop laughing really hard every time I had a tick to the point that like, I had, like I literally on stage was like, Hey man, shut the f up. <laughs> like you had really rude. Cause I can tell, but this is usually if people are laughing because they're unsure, it's usually up top and it's quieter. You know what I mean? When you and I first connected, I, there's a protocol I always go through when I interview people and I say, you know, I have a dog that'll bark. And if he barks, I'm going to mute myself, keep going. And, uh, also, uh, if you swear, it's okay. I'll just bleep you. And some people <laughs> love being bleeped on public. Right? So, but you said, actually, I might not be swearing that much because I'm relaxed. Will you talk about what exacerbates your Tourette's, the symptoms of Tourette's? Because you haven't been really swearing very much with me. Yeah, I mean, uh, the reason I mentioned that is because I keep doing interviews sometimes and they'll be like, you're not really swearing that much. And I'm like, you know, it's I'm chilled out. There's different levels. Um, I probably will randomly at like, if you talk to me for long enough, I think it's like excited states of the body. Uh, you know that, what's that word? Homeostasis or whatever. It's like if you like uh, change it or something. Because I found that like, if, if I have like 
less caffeine, I'll have more ticks. And if I have like two cups of coffee, I'll have more ticks. So there's this weird thing where it's like definitely like adrenaline, uh, nerves. Um, embarrassment is my biggest trigger. So if I like, uh, if I remember like uh, an embarrassing memory, I will like freak out. Like I'll like have like a tick attack for like a, like 30 seconds or something. There's things that calm it down, uh, which is just being calm. It's purely, it's very intertwined with physical state. Also thinking about it more makes me do it more. It's a whole range of things, yeah. So before you step foot on stage and they announce you and the crowd starts cheering and your heart starts racing, I guess what I'm curious about is how does the act of doing stand-up and going out and doing the thing and then you walk off stage when you're done, how does that affect the symptoms of Tourette's for you? I don't have like no ticks, but I have like less ticks on stage than I used to. I'm like definitely like a lot more chill on stage than I was like day one. You know what I mean? Like I was doing um, improv when I was like 19 and then I, it got way worse when I was 21. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So when I'm on stage, I kind of go into like a pattern with it. Uh, Cause it, it's sort of a tension building thing. Uh, and I, I've talked to other people with Tourette's, and this isn't always the case, where they don't have the same tension-building mechanism. So I think that's specifically related to OCD. I can hold the ticks if I want. Like, if I try to, I can hold the ticks. But I can physically, like, feel this, like, buildup of, like, a sort of, like, um, uh, pressure or, like, tension. It's like if you, like, really need to scratch an itch. That's kind of, like, how it ends up going. So kind of what I can do is like, I can itch on purpose as well. That's called stimming, uh, short for stimulating. And I can also do a sort of thing where I just like release the tension. Uh, so while I'm telling a joke, like sentence, I'll hold it and then I'll release. And then I'll hold it and then I'll release. And so it ends up kind of having this like metronomic quality. People tell me sometimes like, um, like I'll go like joke, joke, kind of that back and forth. Yeah, so that that's where I'm at with it on stage now. Is like like I get into the, like I guess my mind is sort of soothed into the same sort of rhythm that I've been doing. You know what I mean? Totally. What are some ways that people screw up talking with you or hearing you or reacting to you? You know, okay, I've been really pushing back against this one lately. That's been really annoying me. Uh, when people tell me I'm brave for performing with Tourette's, I actually really hate that. <laughs> tell me more. Well, it implies they think I should be embarrassed or something. It implies they think it's something to be brave against or past, uh, as opposed to some sort of neutral thing. I'm just telling jokes. You know what I mean? I'm, just, I'm just being myself. But yeah, people. Yeah, so that that annoys me because I don't I don't um, I don't have any mental association with like courage with it. I don't know. But the other side of that is. Um, if it helps inspire people in some way, I don't want to take that away from them. Yeah, that's the other question is how you feel about, you know, you're called brave. And I'm sure now and then you hear that you are an inspiration. Yeah, it's like, I see why. And a part of it is because there are still these like negative, like antiquated notions and feelings people have about Tourette's or uh, actually I watched um, this documentary I have Tourette's, but Tourette's doesn't have me from like 2005. Huh. And it, the kids were ostracized in a certain sense. And so I think um, I think not having had it severe as a child has changed my perspective. 
where like uh i've only had it once i've been like semi comfortable as who i am already um and so like i don't have experiences with being bullied for it right so you don't have the the childhood trauma to add on top of everything else honestly yeah uh i mean if you go on like the tourette subreddit um it's me and a bunch of children tourette usually goes away by a certain age it's rare that you maintain it into adulthood um so it's usually um I have a sort of weird opposite case. So it's like me and a bunch of children hanging out. (laughs) Maybe not good. Um, But the kids are like, they're always complaining. They're like, my mom doesn't believe me or my teachers don't believe me. Or uh, how do I explain Tourette's to the kids in my class or whatever? And I'm like, oh man, that's a nightmare. Sometimes I have the tick and I kind of like catch it halfway. And I just go, mother, I sound like a spoiled British brat. Tourette's is sort of the abstract art of disabilities. A lot of people are like, I can do that. (laughs) There is this tension between being defined by something that you can't change or that won't be changed about you and and not being defined by it. And it's a tightrope only you can really walk. And it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you don't want to be defined by this. That's honestly not a big concern. Uh, I do know that it's like the surface level thing, but I think it's like pretty obvious pretty quickly that it's not my whole deal. Like, I feel like three jokes in, you're like, oh, that's not his thing. If it was getting back to me in more ways, I don't, if I was like only booked on like disability shows or something, then I'd be like, ah, I've been pigeonholed. Then you'd write a one liner about pigeons. <laughs> I ain't got one of those. I'm trying to think. A flock of the messenger pigeons is called a group text. Nailed it. <laughs> yeah, I hopefully people will see me as different than just Tourette's, you know? <laughs> oh, fine. It's up to them, dude. When you are coming up with the flow of how you want an entire show to go, like, how do you, how do you know, like, what that first joke is going to be? And we've talked a little bit about that in terms of whether or not you talk about having Tourette's and when you sort of include it. But even Tourette's aside, how do you figure out the flow of a five minute piece or, or longer? Like, how do you, how do you do that? Individual jokes, I kind of mark as being like, are they early, mid or like late set or like, you know, early, mid, late, mid, et cetera. And that comes down to like early jokes will be things that are uh, quick and clean and also establish a certain voice. Whereas like, you know, stuff that's later in the set will be weirder or require more trust from the audience. There's certain jokes that like hook that I I can't do until the audience is on my side, uh, just because maybe it'll have like a slightly more abstract idea. And if you do it up top, people are still going, I don't know if he knows the idea there, you know what I mean? Um, but if you establish that you're funny or something, if you establish trust with the audience, then you can go, all right, here's this idea. Or like dirty stuff is bad to do right up top. For me personally, at least. Uh, but yeah. How do you go about memorizing the jokes in order? And do you? Is there room for them to sort of be messed with in the moment? Uh, yes and Yes. I memorize them in groups of uh, three that I then group. I, it's literally like a hierarchy chunking process. Like I'll have my Lego Harry Potter joke, Jersey Devil joke, and like uh, my Ratatouille joke as like one cluster that I call cryptids. That's sort of an inside joke for myself. Um, and then like uh, I'll take these, I'll take those jokes and the, the order that I do them in. Like maybe I'll do like 
uh, new bug stuff up top and like old bug stuff at the end. Uh, and like in the middle, it'll be like some dirty stuff. And so like that's that'll be called like the dirty bug sandwich or something. You know what I mean? And so it's easy for me to remember because I'm like, all right, if it's a dirty bug sandwich, we're going bugs, dirty stuff, bugs. And so it's just like uh, it's certain like memorization tricks, chunking and grouping. I feel like instincts are a big part of the work you do, both instincts about what's funny and what isn't. How do you feel like your instincts have been refined? Like, are you happy with how your instincts have grown? I am happy with how I've learned and how my like instincts have improved. I always see room for improvement. I think it's, I think if you get to a point where you think, oh, I'm done now. Oh, my taste, my taste is perfect and I'm done now. You're not leaving room for growth. You know what I mean? When you walk off stage, <laughs> do you always feel the same way? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> Answer that is no. <laughs> what are the ways you have felt? I've had panic attacks on stage. You know what I mean? I still bomb. Like, it's not an exact science. You know what I mean? And that's that's the thing. And like, it's like, you always have to be like learning and shifting and everything. The best it's felt is like, I'll have a set where every joke does well. And there's people in the crowd that I've tried to impress or date or something. <laughs> And then you get off and you go, yeah, or like, especially if it's like a filmed one and you're like, oh, I can't believe I got that one on camera. Then the worst it's felt is uh, the opposite where, you know, maybe every joke, like every joke does poorly or like I've had sets where like I get weird on stage because like a joke doesn't land and I had too many cups of coffee that day and like uh, somebody in the crowd is on their phone and then I just like spiral or something. And it's like this whole thing. It's like, um, you know, so it's like two polar op opposites. I mean, most shows are hopefully somewhere not in the middle, but uh, towards the positive side. If you if you're if you're doing dead in the middle, that's quit. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, if you're batting five hundred, stop. <laughs> before they announce you and the crowd goes wild, those moments right before that happens, what's going on with you? Shadow boxing in the green room. <laughs> I did used to do that. I think I stopped doing that because I, I don't know, it was like just being weird. Uh, but now, now I'm a lot more chilled out. I think like before I had to like really psych myself up, like Eminem style. You only get one shot. Uh, but now I'm like, all right, you know, you have many, many shots. <laughs> Give it your best. I have a mental idea. I call like hands on the wheel. I kind of like, you know, put my hands on the wheel and drive the set, like really focus and pay attention. Not get into a flow state by zoning out, but get into a flow state by zoning in. Well, Benny Feldman, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me on. Benny was recently named one of the new faces at the 2022 Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal. And we'll have links to him and all of our guests at ctpublic.org slash audacious. This show is always lovingly produced by me, Khalil Rahman, Jessica Severin Martinez, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Send me your favorite jokes and reactions to this show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kyone Wolf, or you can send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>